Well, again, welcome to Christ Church. It is great to be with you in worship this morning today and to know that you're not yet churched out after a holiday weekend. Or maybe some of you, after a few of the family events this week, realize that maybe we do need to get to church this Sunday. But whatever reason brought you here today, we are glad to welcome you. And a very special shout out to our family at the Butterfield campus who are tuning in with us this morning as well. My name is Aaron Foster, and I have the pleasure of serving here with our family team, specifically with our high school students. And I think I can speak on behalf of our entire staff team and our servant leader team when I say that if this is your first time visiting us here this morning, um, we would love for you to introduce yourself to me or to anybody on our team with a name tag on this morning so we can start to get to know you and share a little bit of our heart as a community here at Christ Church. Well, if you've been walking with us this Advent season, you know that we've been talking about the pieces of the Christmas narrative that to us seem absolutely impossible. We've been diving into the ideas of an incredible knowledge of God, overwhelming justice, sacrificial salvation, and the amazing fruit of Christmas. Ideas that are not just apparent in the biblical story of Christmas, but that are also crucially important for us to take to heart in our lives today because of the Christmas story. We're going to be finishing up our series this morning by spending time with the impossible reconciliation found in the prophet Isaiah's account of the type of world that this new Messiah is going to bring about. But before we jump into things, let's uh, humbly come before the Lord in prayer together. Father God, we are humbled by you. Lord, by your overwhelming grace and love for your creation, God, and your vision to see it fully restored. Lord, we are in awe that we are a part of that. Lord, today may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. And may you draw us closer to you so that we may be emboldened and encouraged to take a step towards reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some 700 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah brought to the people of Israel a vision of hope through the coming Messiah. And we know that the people to whom Isaiah prophesied were broken, hopeless, leaderless, without identity. They had low spirits, and they were thirsting for some word of hope to cling to. And the word of hope that Isaiah brought to them through God's inspiration was almost literally unbelievable. These words from Isaiah 11 describe the Messiah that was to come to save the people of God. Feel free to take out the the Bibles in front of you in the pews and follow along as I read the first nine verses from chapter 11 here. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt 
and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And let's pause there for a moment. The branch with roots to Jesse that Isaiah is describing here points to Jesus. And then after introducing the Messiah, Isaiah goes on to describe the character of Jesus as well as a vision for the kingdom that will ultimately come to be through Jesus. The promise of the kingdom in which he invites us to experience eternal life with him. Let's continue reading and catch a sense of that kingdom here in verse 6 and following. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, for the people of Israel who originally received this prophecy from Isaiah, and honestly for us today, this is a list of impossibilities. Quick show of hands here. How many of us have seen in real life a wolf living with a lamb? Okay. How about a cow feeding with a bear? Still nobody. How about a young child putting its hand into a venomous viper's nest? For those of you joining us on live stream, there are no hands in the air right now. What Isaiah is saying is that this Messiah is so big, so great, so powerful that the world that he will usher in and reign over will be completely different from the one that we are currently experiencing. This second advent of the Messiah will bring about full restoration, not just between humans, but in creation as well. Isaiah is describing a new creation. In this new creation, the natural tendencies of humanity and of nature, as we have come to experience and expect them, will change. Everything will act as it was perfectly created to. Because that's really what it's going to take for that vision to be fully brought to reality in our world, in our lives, right? A new creation. Our current experience, it's full of hatred. It's full of selfishness, brokenness. Not only does the leopard not lie down with the goat in our current context, but we can hardly sit across from the people that we love most in the world at a holiday dinner without hurtful words or attitudes being shared. Our current state is one where systematic racism is rampant all over the world where we prioritize our political party before the word, where we have countless stories like that of Amy Wall. Amy Wall was a 17-year-old high school cheerleader, a peer counselor through her school. She was active in her local church. And on a Friday night in September of 1992, Amy and her friend were driving home from a concert in nearby Fresno, California, when an oncoming vehicle veered into their lane, smashed into their car, and instantly killed Amy and left her friend in critical condition. The other driver, Joseph Avila, fled the scene, but he was later arrested and charged with second-degree murder, felony drunken driving, and felony hit-and-run. Amy's story is a horribly real example of the brokenness that we are living in. 
And it's easy to start to become overwhelmed by the breadth of the darkness in our world, isn't it? It feels impossible that this animosity that has become such a part of our norm could ever be resolved. Some of us may be reflecting on a struggling relationship or a difficult circumstance in our own lives right now, and we are feeling helpless and hopeless. We don't see a resolution. But Scripture offers us a vision of what has come and what is still yet to come. Out of love for us, our Creator humbled Himself to become flesh so that flesh would be broken and sacrificed on behalf of you and of me. That our tarnished slates would be wiped clean by the one who is blameless and pure. And still to come is the return of that Savior who will usher us into this new creation, new heaven and new earth, where his love will abound between people and all will be humbled before our almighty God. That is the vision that gives us hope and direction in our lives. So what do our lives look like if we are living out that vision? And I want to answer that, or start to answer that at least, by giving you all a Star Wars spoiler. How many of you have seen the new Star Wars film from a couple weeks ago? We got a few of you. That means a lot of you have not seen it, which means you're getting a little nervous about this spoiler. But don't worry, I'm not going to ruin that movie from a couple weeks ago. I want to talk about the 1977 Star Wars Episode Four, And here's the spoiler. Here's the end of the movie. The good side wins. The Death Star is destroyed. Not much of a spoiler because you all probably knew that, I would assume, whether or not you've even seen the movie. And for those of you who have seen that original Star Wars, I would imagine that before you even saw the movie in the first place, you knew what the outcome was going to be. You see, we still spend the time and the money and the effort to go see a lot of films even though we know the outcome. I haven't yet seen the new one, but I plan on it, even though I'm pretty confident that in the end, good is going to prevail. I'm going to go see the movie because it's important for me to see the events that lead to the end. The end of the film makes the rest of it valuable. Friends, we have been given the spoiler of our lives, right? We see it in this passage of Isaiah. We see it all throughout Scripture. God is going to bring restoration and offer us eternal life. We are now living in the events that lead up to that restoration, not in an apocalyptic way, but because we are between the resurrection and the second coming. Even though we know the next big event in the plot, our story now is vitally important. In this stage of the story, when we are anticipating that vision cast by the prophet, we have to ask ourselves this question. How can we live our lives as a reflection of that vision that is yet to come and as an invitation to others to gain eyes for that vision as well? Well, let's look to Isaiah's words. In each of those little vignettes that he offers, we see a relationship of animals or vulnerable children in animals in which aggressiveness, violence, and hurt is typically naturally present. As far as I know, wolves love to eat lamb chops. A leopard would certainly not hesitate to make a meal out of a goat. I can't even imagine any of you parents or grandparents would let your little one lead a lion on a leash. You get the idea. But in the pictures that Isaiah describes, that natural hostility in these relationships is removed. 
The young child is practically cuddling with vipers, which is a drastic difference from our world where I can hardly convince my own dog to cuddle with me. So if we are to live as a reflection of this vision of what Jesus is to bring, how can we start to remove the hostility and the animosity in our relationships? What does actual reconciliation look like? Many of Paul's letters to the early church, he appeals to them to maintain eyes for this vision that we're talking about. In the letter we read in 2 Corinthians, he's addressing a city full of competitive and status-conscious people, which many of us probably know that's a great recipe for creating hostility among relationships. In chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, uh, we see a particularly relevant passage for today's conversation, and here's what Paul writes there. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that, when, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the Greek word used in there for reconciliation is katalage, and is translated as the removal of enmity between two aggrieved parties. See, Paul is urging the people of Corinth that because God reconciled us to him, even after all we have done and continue to do to put distance between ourselves and him, we need to spread that message of reconciliation to others. The reconciliation we have received through Christ must be shared with those around us. He's calling us to that vision of the new creation, that within a new creation, we must have new perspective for seeing others. Through our old lens, that worldly point of view that Paul is talking about, we might see others as less than ourselves. Maybe people that we can put down or even toe the line of offense with. Even though that pain is real for those people, often the pain caused by the way that we elevate ourselves is difficult for us to see since it's masked with self-righteousness. Or maybe through the old lens, we see those who have wronged us, and we naturally feel self-righteous to not offer forgiveness. But instead, we hold that enmity and that animosity within the relationship. Maybe something was shared this week among family or friends that was hurtful, and you've intentionally avoided that person ever since. Or on the other side of the coin, you're realizing now just how far over the line you went in conversation with someone at work or at home and how damaging that might have actually been for them. Because our world is still broken and the full new creation is not yet, enmity within relationship or within people groups or between humanity and nature is still very much present. But through the lens of new creation, we are called to act differently in those situations. Instead of harboring hostility towards those who have wronged us, the vision of new creation through Christ's sacrifice inspires us 
to forgive. Instead of leaving those around us in a pool of hurt and pain because of our words and our actions, viewing them through the lens of that new creation humbles us before Christ and before others to extend love, to seek forgiveness, and posture ourselves in a way that cultivates reconciliation. This idea of reconciliation is so important to that vision that God has for humanity that we see Jesus addressing this to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 23 through 24, he says this, and get a sense of the urgency in his words here. Therefore, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In more modern words, Jesus is saying, before you come to worship God, work to reconcile with those around you. Once you've done that, then you can worship authentically. God values healthy human relationships because one cannot be in right relationship with God if there is enmity in a relationship with another to which there has been no attempt at reconciliation. If I'm coming to worship or I am seeking the Lord in prayer or in scripture, but I know that the way that I've treated a family member or my coworkers has left them hurt, it would be better for me to hold off on worship until I can seek the forgiveness of the other. So there's your biblical excuse to sneak out of church early today. But in the same way, if we have been hurt by someone, we are to work to offer forgiveness to that individual in our hearts and in person, if possible. Too often in our ego, we put ourselves above above the other person who has offended us, neglecting the humility that true reconciliation calls for. Instead of processing through the hurt and the pain in prayer and allowing God's vision for us to color our lens for that relationship, we let the pain stew which only brings more animosity into the relationship. Instead of offering forgiveness, we arrogantly wait for the apology. Or maybe some of you are like me and make the policy of forgive and forget just forget. We completely bypass extending forgiveness and try to put the situation completely out of our minds. The problem is, and I speak from personal experience here, is that we don't actually forget. Right? We may not remember the details of the initial hurtful experience, but without forgiveness, we harbor feelings of resentment that do not allow the relationship to ever get to a state of health. You see, outside of God reconciling ourselves to him, true reconciliation is often a two-way street. God's vision is that our hearts are naturally postured toward reconciliation. That when pain is inflicted, it's not ignored or celebrated or forgotten, but instead is entered into head on. It's waded through with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit by whom healing is even possible. At the end of the passage from 2 Corinthians, you'll recall that Paul tells us that we, were, that we are Christ's ambassadors. In the Roman Empire to which this letter was received, the people of Corinth would have understood the high responsibility of the role of the ambassador to the emperor. The ambassador was someone who needed to live out the example of the law set by the emperor. The ambassador understood the emperor's attitude, motive, and goals and lived their lives in a way that offered a representation of that leader. 
We are called to live our lives as representations of Christ so that others can be brought into the life-changing love that he offers. We live in a culture of doing. And so I know a lot of us are sitting here saying, okay, great, I love it, but what can I do to practice reconciliation? And the best answer to that question is to get in as many fights as possible with the people around you and practice working your way out of them. Just kidding, of course. The answer is less actually about doing and more about being that manifests the doing. As we spend time with God, seeking to know him more deeply through prayer and reading his word, he will draw us nearer to his heart. And his humility, his grace, his love will more naturally pour out of us. It is the being with him that will help us posture ourselves as a reflection of him and allow us to live more accurately as his ambassadors. And as we engage in that life-giving relationship with Jesus, there are four progressions that can help us encourage this type of reconciliation in our lives. And just like so much of the life of a Jesus follower, it begins with humility. And the first progression or step, if you will, is to identify the area of conflict. Where in your life are you feeling hurt or worry or hatred? Or where have you been the source of pain and animosity. Maybe you only needed to hear the word reconciliation right at the beginning of the sermon and a name popped into, the, into your mind. Maybe you walked into this room today carrying the weight of the conflict on your heart. Or maybe pinpointing that enmity in a relationship is proving difficult for you right now. But wherever you are in that process of identifying the conflict, do not neglect to bring God into that process with you. When you've identified the specific conflict, start to imagine the resolution that would fit into the vision of what Isaiah shares. Start to think through the processing and the conversations that may need to happen in order for that resolution to come to pass. This might probably be a good time to invite someone else into the conversation as well so that you, they can help you imagine a resolution that is reconciliation-focused and not selfish or hostility-producing. Maybe you have someone in your life who is the Paul to your church in Corinth, someone who can encourage you when you're on course, but equally as importantly, challenge and correct your direction when you get off course. Close family, Friends, a small group, if you are in one, can all serve as support in prayer and an encouragement through the process of reconciliation. So after we've identified the conflict and we've imagined the resolution, bring that desired outcome to God in prayer, asking for his courage and trust in his timing. Sometimes the discomfort of the situation can make us want to get things wrapped up as quickly as possible, even at the expense of the effectiveness of the reconciliation. But when we ask God to lead in the timing, we start to practice patience and allow him to fully work through the struggle. Finally, as God is leading and prompting out of that conversation, pursue reconciliation. Approach in humility, offer forgiveness, or repentance, all the while keeping that saving vision in the forefront of your heart and mind. On either side of the, the conversation, reconciliation takes a step into discomfort, a leap of faith, or it takes God-given courage. We hesitate so often to reconcile with others because there is a chance of rejection. 
There is a chance that our step of vulnerability might not be met with a similar humility. And this is exactly where the vision of that new creation needs to come in to create a powerful motivation for us. You see, Christ is not calling us to be reconciled to one another so that our lives can be comfortable, but so that we can be ambassadors of his love and his grace. Friends, God promises a new creation where the normal posture of nature is reconciliation. In Isaiah's prophecy, the infant doesn't play in the cobra's den because she is naive or because the snake had its fangs removed. The young bears and the cows will not lie down together because they'll need to keep warm. These things will happen because, as Isaiah 9 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with with the knowledge of the Lord. The infant will know the Lord. The cobra will know the Lord. The calf, the lion, the yearling will all have knowledge of and importantly, humility toward the Lord and thus humility towards all in his creation. In view of that vision, friends, let us be a people among which a glimpse of that type of impossible reconciliation can be possible. Through the hope we have in Jesus Christ and the new creation he is yet to bring, let's live in a way that allows the Democrat to shake hands with the Republican, the wife to embrace the new mother-in-law, the merciful to be shown, shown mercy, the vulnerable and oppressed to have a seat at the table, the beaten Jew to be cleaned, cared for, and loved by the Samaritan, the repentant killer to mourn with the surviving family. Then when we start to practice reconciliation on the individual scale, person to person, we will start to care about seeing it out in the grand scale as well. The vision will color how we see systematic enmity between people groups, between nations, between humanity, and the rest of God's creation. And day by day, we will become a part of experiencing a peak of that full vision that is yet to come now in the present. You see, friends, reconciliation brings God's creation together and together brings us closer to him. I want to bring us back to the story of alcoholic drunk driver Joe Avila from earlier. After the crash that left Amy Wall dead in 1992, Joe was sentenced to the maximum prison time for his charges, 12 years. Early on in that sentence, he was overcome by what he had done and the unbelievable pain that he had caused for two families. Joe checked himself into a sobriety program with Salvation Army and he was touched by the ministry of prison fellowship during his time in prison. Joe came to love God deeply and sought to know him more and more every day. He began to share the gospel with other men that he met in prison and began to lead Bible studies with other inmates. And all throughout this transformation, he prayed that God would help him reconcile with Amy's family, knowing that because of his actions, reconciliation would be impossible. Joe was released on January 6, 1999, and not long after, he received a phone call from his mentor. His mentor was telling him that Amy's brother, Derek, wanted to meet with him. You can imagine the courage that that meeting took for both Joe and for Derek. In their meeting, Joe listened as Derek shared honestly about his sister, everything they did with one another as kids, how much he loved her, how much hatred he had had for Joe, how much he, wanted, he had wanted Joe to die to pay for what he did. 
Joe was able to listen and then share his remorse and seek forgiveness for the very first time. Not long after that meeting with Derek, Joe got another phone call from his mentor. Amy's dad, Rick, wanted to meet. And in that meeting, Joe did not even get an opportunity to ask for forgiveness before he was embraced and forgiven by Rick. I killed his daughter, says Joe, and he was able to hug me and say, I love you. Amy's mother came next with the same story of humble forgiveness, then the church community, then the town, all coming together with the thread of reconciliation. The Avila and the Wall families today are still close because of the action of reconciliation through the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, Joe had the vision. Amy's family had the vision. The vision of what the Lord has done and will yet do powered them to seek out reconciliation that would otherwise be impossible. Maybe you too are in a time where there is a relationship or situation that feels too big, too complicated, too messy to repair. So why even try? Well, friends, we serve a God who created everything. Our God can move mountains. He can part the seas. We serve a God who died on a cross out of his love for you and for me and promises to come again and usher in a new creation. Because our God is so great, we can live into the waiting and the hope of that new creation right now by intentionally moving closer to one another in reconciliation. And God does not want us to wait. There's that urgency in the beginning, the reconciliation process that we hear in Jesus' words from earlier. Maybe there is a phone call that needs to happen today. Maybe there is a lunch that needs to get set up for sometime this week. Maybe a loving action that you need to extend to somebody. Maybe that conversation towards and path towards reconciliation can even begin before you leave the room that you are in right now. With our eyes fixed on that vision of new creation, let's humble ourselves before God and before others and allow him to posture our hearts toward reconciliation. In closing this morning, I'm going to give us all the opportunity to start that path of reconciliation by bringing our hostility, our enmity, our pain to God in prayer. Whether or not you have a name pressing on your heart or a situation of conflict on your mind, let us start down the path toward healing together right now by humbling ourselves to God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are humbled before your reconciliation. Lord, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to take sin from us. God, and we pray that we can be reflections of the vision that is to come, Lord, that we can start to do our part to be the new creation here in the present, Lord, that we can be ambassadors for you, that we can reflect your love and your grace with those around us. Lord, that we would not elevate ourselves above the other, that we would not harbor hostility against them, Lord, but that we would seek repentance and forgiveness. God, right now, many of us are holding a relationship in our hearts. God, that is broken. And in the quiet of our hearts, in relationship with you, in conversation with you, we lift the name of that person or group up to you right now, Lord. We ask you to enter into that. 
Give us the vision, Lord, that, the, that Joe Avila had, that the Wall family had. Give us the vision for your new creation and give us new perspective for these individuals, Lord, so that we may go back into that relationship even today with newfound humility. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your reconciliation. And we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.